3: Welcome back to Where is Bruce Schuler. This is Episode 8, Forgetful Moments. My name is Graham Crowley and thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. The thoughts and opinions in the podcast are mine. Thanks again to my awesome sponsors, Supporting My Coffee Habit. Your contributions are gratefully accepted. I want to take some time to remember how we arrived at this point. In episode one, I outlined the two goals I had for the podcast. The first was to raise the profile of the case and perhaps help in some small way in bringing Bruce Shuler's remains home. The second goal was to explore rumours that there'd been a wrongful conviction in the case. Whilst Bruce's remains are yet to be located, I believe I have raised his profile The podcast is on its way to its first 100,000 downloads. Thanks for listening. The case has been aired on Talkback Radio in Cairns. I'm not aware of any newspaper coverage, but I do not live in that part of the world. Hopefully some media is picking up the story. I can understand the Cairns Post being reluctant to report on it. Whilst they did report the case comprehensively, there was no question they added to the sensationalism by demonising the Strubers. It would be difficult to now walk that back. On 14 February just past, Channel 9 aired an episode on the murder of Leanne Holland, based on one of my podcasts. Next Wednesday, 21st February, Channel 9 again will air an episode on another of my podcasts, Bring Home Sandrine. Two television stations have expressed interest to me in doing a story on Bruce Shuler. That would raise the profile of his disappearance exponentially. It could well be positive in assisting in recovering his remains. Any television episode on Bruce Shuler would undoubtedly also explore the second goal of my podcast. That is, was this a wrongful conviction case? Which brings me to this episode, Forgetful Moments. As reported in earlier episodes, whilst researching this case, I was struck by the apparent inconsistencies in the evidence of the Crown Witnesses. It disturbed and concerned me, to the point I wanted to explore it further. To satisfy myself whether the inconsistencies I noted were significant or trivial. And as I said, inconsistencies do not go to the guilt or innocence of Stephen Struber or Diane Wilson, but they do go to the credibility of the Crown Witnesses. And make no mistake, this case comes down to the versions provided by the Crown Witnesses, and the versions provided by the Strubers. You either accept the word of the witnesses, or you accept the word of the Strubers. There was little supporting forensic evidence. There was minimal physical evidence. The missing firearms remain a concern. For that, you have to accept that Bruce was shot to death, and the minimal forensic evidence falls well short of supporting that. But with the new evidence, that now seems unlikely. It was known but never saw the light of day in the trial that the Struber vehicle did not go to the second crime scene. How then did the Strubers get there, murder Bruce, return his body to the ute and leave, apart from walking or teleporting, both of which are inconceivable and absurd? The police investigators were obviously aware the ute never went to the second crime scene. How did they conclude, therefore, the events which were ultimately placed before the jury? I will ask the Queensland Police Service and let you know in a future episode if I receive a reply. And how and when did the tyre tracks appear on the ravine? And who made them? I will discuss that in a future episode also. If you think I'm obsessing over inconsistencies, I'll explain it this way. As an investigator it is absolutely critical you believe your witnesses and what they are telling you, that you get to the truth before you even get to the suspects. At some point, you'll be putting their allegations to the suspects. If you later try to walk back some claims and put other claims to the suspects, that would be a very difficult conversation to have. So here we are, forgetful moments. The human memory is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But as we know, with the passage of time, memory fades. We were very fortunate in this case that police were on the job very quickly and were able to capture memories, recollections, observations and comments virtually immediately. And with the assistance of audio and visual aids, permanent records now exist of those observations and conversations to be looked at replayed, dissected, picked over, an audio and visual recorded history of the demise of Bruce Shuler. After seven episodes and hundreds of hours of research into the Palmville case, I can ask myself several questions. Do I have concerns with the evidence of the witnesses in this case? To be frank, yes I have. Have I found conflicting versions? Yes I have. Have I found inconsistencies? Yes, I have. What does it mean? It could mean any number of things. The witnesses are mistaken, poor memory, we're not paying attention, or perhaps even lying. Just because someone lies, the worst should not immediately be assumed. People lie for any number of reasons. Obviously, one is they have something to hide. Other reasons include they feel under pressure to help or appease the person asking the question. And even they think they're doing the right thing. I found enough inconsistencies, irregularities if you like, in this investigation. I felt an obligation to raise them, to put them in the dialogue. After all, if we're having an honest conversation about this case, all cards should be on the table. I want to start with the Sunday the day before Bruce's disappearance. The events of the Sunday were seemingly considered inconsequential to the investigators. I can say that because very, very little was recorded of the prospector's activities on the Sunday. I personally believe much more investigation could have been done, and should have been done, on what occurred on the Sunday. Why? As an investigator, I would want to know where everyone was, how they got there, why they went there, who they were with. Seemingly, the investigators were more focused on what happened once they got to the Palmville. That was their call, their investigation. And here is just one example of why you'd want to know what happened on a Sunday. What if there was a fight, an argument, ill will between some of the prospectors on the Sunday? Obviously, you'd want to know that, right? That and all the other potential scenarios should have been eliminated. And you only eliminate it by investigating them, by asking questions. So that if circumstances ever arise, like right now, the investigators can sit back and comfortably say, Yes, we ticked all those boxes. Regrettably, in this instance, I do not believe those boxes were ticked. The investigators did cursorily ask if there was any ill will between the prospectors. The collective answer was no. But had their movements on the Sunday been thoroughly covered, that aspect, and all others would have been completely eliminated. And again, I'm not suggesting anything untoward did occur between the amigos. I merely raise that as an example. After analysing, comparing the statements of the three prospectors in respect of Sunday, is there one word, one phrase, to describe that analysis? One phrase does come to mind for me. train wreck. I simply cannot reconcile the versions of events as provided by the three prospectors for the Sunday. This was a casual day out prospecting. Perhaps the answer lies right there. It was so plain, so ordinary, nothing was worthy of remembering. But what concerns me is these recollections, these memories, were not weeks old, not months old, as is the case in many investigations. These memories were days old. One day, two days, and at most three days. Did I form an opinion about the events on the Sunday? Yes, I did. But I'll let you form your own opinion. Were there significant discrepancies or merely trivial discrepancies between the versions as provided by the Amigos? Again, that is a matter for you. The witnesses in this case gave statements one day after the disappearance of Bruce Schuller. And that was two days when referring to the Sunday. I say their evidence should have aligned. If you found you could not rely on the recollection of what occurred on the Sunday, would you be confident of their recollection of the Monday? Here are some general observations which were seemingly not canvassed by the investigators. If they were canvassed, I can find no record of them. Why did the prospectors go to Palmville? I have raised this in the past. Around twelve months before the murder, Bruce Shuler had asked a friend, Bruce Parker, to approach Stephen Struber about seeking permission to prospect on Palmerville. Shuler was told he would be allowed on, but with very strict stipulations. Yet he chose to trespass regardless. Throughout this episode, you will hear many conversations by Daniel Bidner. They are his words and his voice, unless I indicate otherwise. A
4: couple of of days later, or maybe a week later, I rang Bruce and said, hey bud, we're heading down to Palmerville, do you want to come for a run? Yep. You want to go down there detective, because the neighbours, our neighbours got 10 ounces down there. Right, okay. And we saw the gold, and we thought, right, let's go.
3: Was that claim ever verified? Who was a prospector? Was he interviewed? Was a statement taken? I can find no record of it. In point 13 of Groth's statement, taken two days later on the Tuesday, he informed they drove to Dan Bidner's property on the Sunday, arriving at around 7.30am and left around 9am. They had to wait whilst others had breakfast. In Joanne Bidner's statement, they arrived at 7.30, had a cuppa and left shortly after. They haven't even left Maytown and already there are discrepancies. Where they went after leaving Dan Bidner's property, what time they arrived there, what they did after they arrived, depends on whose version you accept. Dan Bidner had them arriving at the Palmer River at lunchtime. That later changed to mid-afternoon. That made for a very short time to actually prospect around the Palmer. He made no mention of prospecting north of the Palmer in the vicinity of Mount Emma around five kilometres past the Palmer River until October 2012, when a video he had taken of Mount Emma became known. Here we are in Struberville, hiding out in a little gully. It's Mount Emma over there. The drive from Maytown to the Palmer Crossing ordinarily took 90 minutes apparently. According to Kevin Groth, it took them 2.5 hours to reach the Palmer. Groth told police they stopped several times on the way to the Palmer where Tremaine pointed out different landmarks and where he had previously found gold. Tremaine Anderson made no mention of stopping along the way from Bidness property to the Palmer River. Anderson and Groff made no mention of prospecting toward Mount Emma. Out of the three prospectors, not one recalled that rather significant deviation to the itinerary. This next recording was made on Monday night, around 12 hours after the disappearance of Bruce Shuler.
5: Okay, can you tell me what's happened today, mate? Um, what happened was uh, were we were out
4: detecting. Yep. Down on um, down the on the main crossing of the uh, where the main uh, Palmerville Road crosses
5: Palmerville uh, crosses the Palmer. Yep, that's a, that main. That's quite big, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Yep. And all the tourists. As we went through, there was
4: tourists behind us and in front of us. You know, a couple of uh, four drives with caravans and uh, or the camper vans. You know. Yep or what do you
5: call, camper trailers. Okay, yep.
4: And uh, we went through and um, said, oh, well, I said to the boys, look, let's not hide her out of here, you know. Yep. Let's just camp right here on the river where we where the river's not part of his land, you know. Okay. Let's just camp here, and that way if he comes along, we'll just chat to him, you know.
5: And who's that, mate? Obviously you got concerns with someone for the land. Who, who is that? The,
4: the person we're worried about.
5: Yeah. Yeah, Struber. Struber? Do you know his first name, mate? Even. Yep, okay. Okay, yeah, go on. And
4: uh, we got down into the uh, crossing, we said, right, let's just camp here. So we set up camp last night, we, a couple of us walked upstream, yep. and two of us walked downstream. There's four of us all up. Okay, yep. Two walked upstream, two walked downstream.
3: And later, he added this.
4: But with the new road going through, Sides, they have had, you know, Struve has probably had his fair share of people coming down that way, you know what I mean? Okay, yeah. Because the road's been opened up and there's tourists camping everywhere. Yep. Even around Maytown, I noticed this year there's a way, there's Winnebay goes. there's all sorts of stuff, you
5: know? Okay.
3: As you heard, after they set up camp, they went prospecting. Two upstream, to Two downstream. Another variation was one downstream, three upstream. Yet other variations had them on the northern side of the river or on the southern side of the river. And that is significant because they had to take their boots off to cross the river to go to the north and then put their boots back on when they came back to camp. Yet another variation was two upstream, one downstream, one remaining near the camp. Tremaine Anderson apparently found the gold downstream towards Palmville Station. But in another variation, Anderson was said to have found the gold upstream. Anderson told the police he was the last one back at camp that night and the other three were already there. Groth told the police he was the last one back at camp. One witness stated there were no other vehicles or persons camped around them, but they did hear a few tourists driving past during the night. Why weren't they concerned one of those vehicles wasn't Struber? And you heard what Bidner said about the tourists going across the crossing. And very contradictory to what they said about an approaching vehicle the next day, the Monday. One prospector said this in part. I was about to start prospecting in the gullies, more towards the car slash camp on the same side of the river, that Bruce was when I heard a vehicle. This was about two minutes after I'd just seen Bruce. Straight away I panicked because I knew that would be Struber. How would you know that? From their comments it seemed like Queen Street, Brisbane with traffic going everywhere. These statements were made one day after the events. When the matters should have been still fresh in their memories. It seemed possible to me the prospectors went to the Palmer River independently and met up there at some point. But that is madness. If that was the case, why not just say that? Why fabricate a story along the lines we have heard? It is nonsensical. But as I said, I cannot reconcile their movements with their versions given to police. And that takes us to the Monday, the day Bruce disappeared. I describe the discrepancies between the evidence on the Sunday as a train wreck. Is there one word or phrase I could use to describe the discrepancies on the Monday? Disturbing comes to mind. Depending on whose version you accept, they left camp somewhere between 6.15am and 7.30am after waking at 5.30am to Tremaine's alarm. And as one witness added, you get out prospecting early to beat the heat. In their defence... They were not wearing watches. But it is difficult to think they wasted up to two hours getting ready to leave camp. Their detecting equipment should have already been set up from the previous day. The following recording was also made the same night Monday.
4: And uh, so next morning we had no no trouble that night. We slept through till 5.30 in the morning. Okay. Um, had a fire going. We weren't hiding or anything, you know. Righto, yeah. And uh, then the next morning we got up five thirty. We would have hung around camp, I reckon, till about six thirty, quarter to seven. All right, off we went. And because we, we had to c- cross the creek, we
5: uh, took our boots off. We hadn't put our boots on yet. We put our boots on when we crossed the creek. Okay, yeah. Because
4: we had to walk through the water a little bit. And off we went, and we would have only been out probably an hour, an hour, if that. Yep. If that, probably more like three-quarters an hour.
5: Okay, yeah.
4: And the other bloke said, oh, this is where i got that gold here, you know. Okay. So, uh, and, you yeah, know, those metal detector machines, they can't operate together. Oh, okay. Because they're noisy with each other. Righto. So one bloke said, oh, well, he never found a piece of gold, so he said, oh, you have a look here, matey, Oh. Hey? Righto. And we'll go We'll go and just walk down the creek and have a look around, you know. Yep. So we're just walking down the creek, looking around. I'd only just not, lo- i probably half an hour left there. Righto. And then I thought, oh, bugger this, they should be finished by now. I'm going to go back to where the goal was found, you know. Okay,
3: yeah. So I started walking back to where the goal was found. I wondered if I was the only investigator to have trouble, concerns, with Dan Bidner's language. He was describing what happened that very day, that morning. Yet he was talking in the past tense. I will play the part again, which disturbed me.
4: And, uh, so we, next morning we had no no trouble that night. We slept through till 5.30 in the morning. Okay. Um, had a fire going. We weren't hiding or anything, you know.
5: Righto, uh, yep.
4: And, uh... The next morning we got up 5:30. We would have hung around camp, I reckon, till about
3: 6:30, called to seven. I was struck by the language. The next morning, as opposed to this morning, the shooting did not occur until between 9:30 and 10:30 a.m. Depending on whose version you accept, allowing up to an hour to walk to the area where it occurred, then they prospected again depending on whose version you accept, for somewhere between 20 and 90 minutes, there appeared to be a large amount of time unaccounted for. And as you just heard, three of them seemingly stayed together whilst Groth was prospecting. One day later, that changed to the prospectors dispersing in different directions. You may recall I discussed in an earlier episode the considerable variations in time of returning to that spot from 20 minutes to 1.5 hours. I have also wondered before whether Diane Struber would hear the dog barking over the noise of the engine in the ute. And I now ask this question. Was Red Dog deaf? Would Red Dog have heard the car? And
4: uh, and just while I sat, I just sat down on me bum. Yeah. And uh, and I heard a car coming. So I went, oh, shit, here comes the bloody, probably that station owner, you know? Yep. Steven Struber. So um, I, I squatted down and, yep, fair enough, up the, up the little spur comes Struber with his missus. And at the very same moment, I heard Bruce's dog bark. Okay, yeah. And, and at the same time, Bruce said quiet, you know, like telling his dog to be quiet. Yep. And that was what made Struber stop.
3: I have previously covered the issue of who did and didn't get out of the vehicle and whilst that changed as regularly as the weather I was not proposing to cover that ground again. I am now in possession of further material which confirmed that both offenders left the vehicle on that version. This audio also covered the type of weapon Diane was allegedly carrying and in the same conversation the Crown witness discusses hearing the first gunshot. And just to confirm, this conversation was recorded on the Monday night, the day Bruce went missing.
4: Like I said, I squatted down there at the 50, after moving 50 metres, I stayed still. Yep. And that's when I first heard the first gunshot. And I went, oh shit, they're letting guns off. I yep. thought they might have seen me. As I moved. OK, yeah. And they were shooting the gun to let me know
5: that they, they know I'm in there, you know what I mean? OK, yeah. OK, yeah, and because you, you were concerned that that shot might have been in your direction? Yeah. Because you, you had moved? Exactly.
3: Those comments add a new dimension to the case. You may recall one motive for the murder was that Bruce Shuler was mistaken for Dan Bidner and that he was alone in the gully. Why and how they could conclude that, I have no idea, but that was apparently the thinking. If Diane and Stephen had seen Dan Bidner on the other side of the gully, they would have known the prospector was not alone. And if they had identified him as Dan Bidner, why shoot Bruce Shuler? So many questions. Two of the prospectors described the clothing worn by both Struber and Wilson as khaki in colour. On several occasions the following night, Tuesday, when they were both arrested, they were wearing dark blue clothing. Were any khaki clothes found during the search of the Struber property? It seems not, and certainly none containing blood or DNA that only really becomes significant after you speak with Frank, longtime friend of Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson. How long have you known uh, Stephen Struber and uh, Diane Wilson?
2: Well, Graham, I've known Stephen for over 50 years. I knew the entire family. I knew them very well. We were all very close. We all grew up together. Okay. Diane I've probably known for about 30 years or thereabouts. All right. But I know Stephen really well. I yep. know him and all his family, mother, father, everyone, you know. Do you believe that they murdered uh,
3: Bruce Schuler,
2: Graham? I've never at any time believed that uh, that. And and after listening to your podcast and all the evidence and everything like that, I'm even more convinced than ever that they are totally innocent of this crime.
3: What made you sort of so sure that um, before the podcast, I mean, what made you so sure that uh, they weren't responsible?
2: Well, the first thing that stuck in my mind was you've got to have a motive to want to take another person's lives. And I've known Stephen all my life; they were bushies, but they lived by our code. You know, they were really they were good, honest people. Their mother was a good woman. Their father was a strong, honest man. He taught them to be good men, the whole family. They were all good people. And Stephen used to call cool down periodically. I'd hear all the stories he'd talk about. There was another thing that you didn't mention in the podcast, that Stephen was always incensed when he saw litter bugs. He didn't like people camping and leaving stuff laying around. And this had gone on for a long time, and that's why their resentment built over the years. So I don't doubt for one minute that he might have bailed up some people and been a bit forthright in telling them to clean their campsite up or pull up at the homestead in future. But he was always glad to see people because up there, it's a remote area. You don't have much of a social life. So it was always hard for me to believe what I've been reading in the papers about this bloke bailing people up. I thought, it's a load of bull. I'd known him all my life. Whenever he called in to see me, he was the same, friendly, hardworking, honest, stalwart character I've always known. So I never believed it for a minute. And to commit a crime like that, he's too smart to think he could ever get away with it. I mean, if you look at his record, I don't know but the police would be able to do all of this, of course. I don't think Stephen ever had so much as a speeding ticket. I mean, even when he was on the road, he's driving. He was always a careful man. He was never a rev head as a kid. He was never someone that had break the law. You know, their father was pretty strict with them boys, eh? So, no, I never believed it. You've got to have a motive. You don't come up and shoot somebody because they're trespassed. And as far as the motive the mentioned in the podcast that they mistook Bruce Shuler for uh, Daniel Bidner, again, that doesn't hold water. No way in the wide world. I heard about the confrontations at the Crock Hole and the fact that Stephen had walked away from that rather than have the, uh, the argument escalate further. That, that's the bloke that I know. They were all strong men. They were all tough boys. But... They'd never look for trouble, and his father used to say that. And the other thing, I, I heard um, uh, Anderson talk about how the first time he'd met Stephen Struber, he was stumped to the ground from behind and he thought he got hit by a scrub ball. Well, old Charlie Struber would have disowned any of his boys if they king-hit anybody or seek to promote violence or anything like that. He, he didn't allow that nonsense. So, yeah, again, it's completely out of character. I did also, when you read the extracts from the newspaper clippings, about how they said Stephen was a bully. Well, ask any of the young people that he grew up with. It was the opposite. If there was some kid that was a little bit overweight or uh, one that wasn't athletic or anything, he'd always take him under his wing and he was always extra kind to them because they weren't as athletic or as capable as the rest of us. So, again, none of it added up. It was like reading and hearing things about a completely different person, and I knew him well-grown, really well, eh? If my dear old dad was alive today, he'd tell you, he'd be over 100 years of age, dad, if he was still around, he'd tell you about the time Stephen fixed his car for nothing, how he was always doing work for pensioners and older people, always helping out. He never ripped anyone off. He'd do quality mechanical work, repairs and things, and, and say, you're right, mate, I won't charge you for that. Or I had these parts laying around. It didn't cost me anything. Where well, you go. He, he was generous. And he wasn't a wealthy man. So, again, that speaks volumes for the character of the bloke. He was a battler. That's the Stephen Struber I know. And if you were to come to his hometown where he grew up here, you will find 100 people with the same sentiments as me. I saw a bloke today shopping down the IGA store and he said, nah, no way in the wide world did Stephen Struber do that. Mm. And as, as for Diane, I mean, I read that about her too in the newspapers and made her out to be some sort of a... Diabolical, heartless, cold person. She was nothing like that. The Diane. The first time I met Diane, I couldn't even give her a glass of water. She was very independent. She was. Quiet, shy, Stephen brought her here and she was didn't want to impose. You know, she was used to being independent and out in the bush and it took a long time before I finally, because I act the goat and laugh and carry on, and eventually once she got used to me, then she was quite articulate. She loved talking about cattle, horses, things she was familiar with. So I found Diane a really good woman. Mm. She loved animals. She was good with all my dogs here. She was just a yeah, good-hearted bugger, Yeah. So, well, yeah. Could um, Stephen fight? Stephen, well, the one all of them boys could take care of themselves because old Charlie used to have he had a shed a work mechanical workshop and you could go down there on a Sunday afternoon and you could put the boxing gloves on. So all the brothers used to do a bit of sparring and we get other young blokes too, they might be taekwondo fellas. They'd all come there and you could basically have a bit of fun sparring. And old Charlie, he was like the referee and trainer at the same time. But he also liked to train people's character. He would not tolerate. We called him Mr. Strew, but there was none of this familiarity, none of this cheekiness or anything. We all respected him. And Stephen, yeah, he never looked. Of all the boys in the family, Stephen was the quiet one that would go out of his way to avoid trouble. But he did have heavy hands. And, I mean, he could punch. And when I hear about these confrontations up there, after all those years, not a single punch was ever thrown, and that, that says speaks volumes for for what Stephen. Yeah, he could take care of himself. Don't worry about that. But he never looked for it, Graham. I never, never. Stephen and
3: Diane were described as wearing khaki clothes on that day, Frank.
2: <laughs> yeah, I remember reading something about that about eight years ago. I did read a statement that was said in court. Well, look, maybe I'm colour blind, Graham, but. I can remember Stephen, his favourite colour work clothes, King G work clothes, it was always dark green, usually with long sleeves because when he was welding and that you don't get your arms burnt and everything like that. And right. I remember Stephen, his first wife, Janet, she used to actually make clothes. They'd buy the pattern, he'd cut the material out and she'd make the shirts and clothes for him. So, of course, after, eventually they realised they weren't saving very much. You could buy them off the shelf almost for the same price. But, but yeah, always green. That was... I never been to Palmerville Station, so I got no idea what he used to wear when he was living up there and working up there. But whenever I saw him down here on the coast or when he came to visit, it was usually green, eh?
3: Never saw him in Khaki?
2: Not that I can remember. Like, yeah, it was always green, dark green, but not that that means anything. I mean, I've, like I said, I've never been to Palmerville, but to me, he wore green, yeah.
3: Hi, I'm
0: Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
2: I Tell you what, if you want character references, all I heard about when this case was coming up, though, I remember the police on the radio saying, if you had a run-in with this man, come forward. I never heard anyone asked to come forward if you knew him and, and give another side to it, because, like I said, it's that out of character for that man. He sat at my table, and if he would have committed that crime, he would have admitted to that. Oh, the Bushman code they lit by Graham A. Old Charlie used to tell him, "Don't lie, don't quit." live cleanly and speak softly and fight hard and fair. That was their mantra. So this business of no, no way in the world, mate. Yeah. No way.
3: Stephen and Diane were staying with you during the trial, weren't they?
2: They were, morning and evening. I'd see them every morning before work, half past four in the morning. We'd have breakfast together and I'd see them in the evening when they came home, again.
3: And on the day of the verdict, can you just um, tell me what happened that day?
2: I can. Just leading up to that, I'd ask him every afternoon, how you going there, Stephen? He said, well, I've never been to court before. He said, my bloke says something and their bloke says something. But anyway, on the morning that they were convicted, I said to him, what do you want for dinner tonight? And Stephen said, oh, well, hopefully it'll be over sometime after lunch. And we've been away that long. We've We've got that much work to do. We've got to get back on the property. And I said, look stay one more day, you can leave first thing in the morning, we'll have a good feed, you can celebrate, whatever, and it'll be okay. And that that was it. Uh, They never made it home that day. That was... They must have been
3: very confident they weren't going to be convicted.
2: Well, Stephen always said to me, he said, we weren't there, just like he said in court. He said, we weren't there. And he looked me in the eye when he told me this, Graham. And, like, that bloke, he did not lie. That's... forever. We've all got our faults, eh? But one thing I can tell you, that man was not a liar. Ask, people that, ask other people that have known him. They will tell you he was not one to lie. If he would have done, just say they would have had a confrontation and the other fellow fell back and hit his head accidentally, he's the sort of man that would own up to it and take responsibility for his actions.
3: The new material in my possession also covers what weapons were seen and heard. And whilst I've previously covered that, I feel it's important to revisit it. And just a reminder: this conversation was recorded on the Monday night between Detective O'Brien and Crown Witness Dan Bidner.
4: I reckon I was probably 150 metres from them. Okay. Sitting in the bush, and you know, I'm still. I'm thinking, oh, they won't see me. I'm dead still, and I'm dressed in camo gear. Yeah. And not camo, but just khaki. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, normal bloody uh, khaki gear. Anyway, um, and then I saw her bring the gun out of the car, and I went, "Oh shit!" So I, I, sort of, I got up. I thought I'll take the risk here of moving. You know what I mean? Okay. Yep.
5: Because I thought they might see movement. You know? Yep. So I thought, no, and I seen that gun. I went, I oh,
4: know I'm going to make a move here. So I walked probably fifty metres away.
5: Okay. And squatted down. At that point, I lost vision. Okay. Right. Because I'd fifty metres away, okay. it to my vision. But yep. I, at at one point, my last vision was him and her getting out of the car, her with the gun. What sort of gun did you have, mate?
4: I, I, look, I'm
5: not sure, bro. Okay, um, long I... ri- It was a, it's a rifle. Okay, yep, that's fine, yep. All I know, it was a long gun.
4: Yeah. I thought it was a shot in myself, but the boys said, "Nah, Dan, that was a that was a high-powered rifle." And I said, "Oh, I really thought it was a." 12 gauge or something you know okay, yeah. but they, we, we dispute that between ourselves that's
5: fine that's fine
3: this following conversation was recorded 24 hours later at Mariba when witness Bidna was providing a statement to police you
4: recognise Mr and Mrs The passenger window I, re- yep. I recognise it as Mr and Mrs Trooper but I yep. have a visual on her yep Okay. I see the gesture. Yep. Dog bark. Yep. Gesture. It stops. It stops. Yep. And they get out. I see her getting out with the right, with the, going for the back of the seat. Yep. And um, and that's what she did when I had the altercation with her. Right. Right. Yeah. But I was quick then. I yeah. was close. Yeah. So I bounced up beside the car. Yeah. I'm a bit on forward, like you know. Mm. My old man was a cop. Mm. You know, and uh, so I have a little bit of that, you yeah. know what I mean, yeah. a little bit of stand-y, Yeah. you know. So I bounced up and I went, yeah, what? You're gonna get the gun up. Mm. You're gonna get the gun mm. And then straight away they turned the video camera off. Uh, okay. then I said, gun oh, right. while they're videoing, see. Yeah. And he's saying, what gun, what gun? I said, everyone knows you get said gun out, mate. Mm. And I was standing close enough that if I saw that coming out of the car, mm. I was gonna bang the door on. Okay. I was hoping yeah. not to do that. You yeah. Of course. But I thought I'm not having a gun pointed at me and all these people, you know. Yeah, yeah. So But uh, I didn't have to. Describe <laughs> she got out. You got she got out? Yeah, describe I, what she I, I, both I obviously can see he's getting out too. Yeah. He's Turn. still turn the car off, she's a bit quicker than him. Yeah. Her door's first, his yeah. door second. Yeah. Then she's flicked the sleeve forward. Yeah. Done. And that's the last thing I saw. Uh, describe the gun for it. mate. Black stick, that long. Okay, That's all I saw. That's all you saw, right. Wouldn't know it was a rifle, a shotgun, what? But how did you know that it was a rifle or a Because that's what she does. She keeps it there all the time, bro. Right? Okay. It was a rifle, a Rifle. Okay. I saw it. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, yeah. I was 50 metres from Bruce. Mm. So they're one hundred. They're, they're probably thirty metres in Bruce. Mm. You know, so that's seventy odd metres. You, know. you, you get down the street, and yeah, look right. seventy metres, bro. Yeah. see what you see. You see Is a black anything, stick. Think...
3: This next conversation was recorded the next day, Wednesday, during the reenactment with the crown witness,
1: talking about her movements as she got out of the vehicle. Uh, uh, describe what she removed from the vehicle.
4: I, I saw her... Uh, what looked to be her flipping the seat forward, like making the seat fall forward, mm-hmm. and then reaching reaching behind the... this end of the back... behind the seat for what, to me, at this distance, was definitely a rifle.
1: Describe it further for me. Uh,
4: I, I remember seeing the... Uh, uh, a, a blackish-coloured stock, mm-hmm. a, a barrel, and, and a lighted-coloured, and a, lighted a brownie-lighted-coloured stock. Okay. I what? could not see what model gun it was mm-hmm. or what calibre, but it was definitely a rifle.
1: Okay. What's your experience with firearms?
4: Uh, I own uh, three firearms or four firearms. I own a pallet gun and a three five seven Magnum. Uh, rifle. I also own a two-four-three rifle and um, a twenty-two Winchester Magnum.
1: Okay. Any other firearms, handguns? No. Okay. Keeping those firearms in mind, and the firearm you saw. Yep. Which of the firearms you own would it be similar to, if if at all? Now I'm talking about dimensions. Well,
4: I, I I'd say it would have been close to something like my three-five-seven because yep. my three-five-seven is. And the, my 22 are the only ones that have a lever action. Okay. And I'm, it looked a lot like my 357.
1: Okay. And that's dimensions you're talking there.
4: The uh, dimensions, not colour.
1: Okay. Uh, you've seen her remove the item. Yes. She believed to be a, a, a rifle of some description. What did she do next?
3: And as you may recall, by the time it got to court, we were back to the black stick. I found these following comments curious. They too were recorded on the Monday night. Now, depending which version you accept, the Crown witnesses either did or didn't prospect their way back to the camp after the shooting. So I find it hard to process that on the one hand they are or aren't prospecting, and yet they're also scared.
4: Um, I know, and as I'm trying to listen, all I can hear is my heart beating. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm in a bit of a scare. Yeah, well, that's understandable. Yep.
3: Yeah, I thought, well, I don't want to get curl caught. You know. Yep. Then there is the issue of whether Crown Witness Bidner did or did not stand up after the Strube Ute passed him when it was on its way back to the property, and it is important because obviously. If he stood up and saw the back tray, he would be able to see whether there was a dead body on it or not. The following conversation, again, was recorded on the Monday night.
4: And When it started up the move the second time, it drove turned around and drove back down the spur along the river back towards the homestead. The only thing
5: I regret, Sarge, is I didn't lift my head up to... Because I was scared, you know, worried. But that's understandable. I so. didn't lift my
4: head high to visually get a visual. I, I lifted my head a little bit, but I didn't stand up, and I just saw, like, the top bars of the car,
5: you know,
4: like the okay. the, the roof and the top yep. bars. Yep, yep. And uh, I went, oh, yeah, there they go, hopefully thinking, oh, well, Bruce will be there. I'll go back and see him, you know?
5: Yep.
3: 24 hours later, Crown Witness Bidner provided a statement to police at Mariba Police Station and this is what he had to say at that time.
4: The car, then I hear the car start up. Yep. I wear it from my position, but the car start up and drive back the way it came towards the homestead. Okay. Getting set uh, west down the river. In a westerly direction down the river. Yep. Um, and from my position mm-hmm. I saw the top of the ute below me looking down into the main the main Palmer River yep and I watched that vehicle disappear towards it I did not stand up and get a look at who was in it or who was on it thinking you know I didn't think he would take Bruce away you know what I mean
5: yeah
4: mm. I did not think that at all once that vehicle left I rose from my, my position and I gingerly and carefully walked back wondering whether they would whether they would have left someone there you know like he's gone back and left her And now I've thought to myself, I've never seen them separated, so I don't think they'd ever separate, you know? They always act as a pair to back each other up. Yeah. Which is their general uh, habit Uh. from past experience. Okay. Um,
3: The following conversation was recorded the next day, Wednesday, when the Crown Witness gave a reenactment. To police,
1: Dan. We're now in the position of the gully, and what I'd like you to do now is describe for me what you heard from here. And if that involves the vehicle moving, you tell me when you'd like that to happen, and we'll arrange for that. I, I sat
4: here between twenty and thirty minutes. At which point, I heard a vehicle start. If you get that vehicle to start now, we should yep. be able to hear it. As we can hear, that vehicle's getting closer to us to me now. Okay. As you can hear, it's getting louder and louder. I can hear it getting level with me. I rose to my haunches. I took my hat off and put it down there so as not to be seen. And as you can witness, I can just see the roof of that vehicle.
3: Whilst the witness said he rose to his haunches, From looking at the video, he was standing fully erect and possibly even on tiptoe, in total contrast to what he had previously said. Then there is the issue of the clang, as you're about to hear. The problem is the witnesses variously heard it after the first gunshot, after the second gunshot, and some witnesses heard it after both gunshots. For the uninitiated, That was obviously suggestive of the detecting equipment being thrown onto the vehicle tray. And I noted too that the distance the Struber vehicle had shortened from around 100 metres to 20 metres.
4: After the first shot and I heard the muffled voices, then I heard like a clang on the back of the ute. Like, Like you throw a heavy tool on the back of a steel tray vehicle. Okay. Most bushies would know that sound, you know. Yep. And I recognise the sound as such. Okay. Presuming um, that you know, it's a vehicle. That's the only thing that could make that noise. Right? Yeah. Okay. Um. Then, uh, where am I? So he's. Um, oh, that. Then the car's driven off. Yes. So muffled voices. Um. The clang. Yeah. The car drives off a bit. Yeah. Now, I don't know, I doubt it, clang might have been the gun going, through. I don't know. Anyway, then the clang, then the car drives off, mm-hmm. sound like it only drove like 20 yards, yeah. stops again, bang, again. I reckon maybe 5, maybe 10 minutes in between the two shots. Might have, you know, yeah. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Then, it was like half and... Mm-hmm. 20 minutes, half an hour at least, I sat there going, what's going on? What's going on? I couldn't hear any more voices. I thought I heard that clang again. That cut, But the car's obviously further away from me now.
3: Did witnesses Bidner and Anderson meet up after the shooting as was said in court? Or did they meet up back at the campsite? Again, it depends on which version you accept. Now, this audio was recorded on the Monday night.
5: Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, just make sure i got this right. You hear the second gunshot? The car starts up and it moves, but it only goes a short distance. Exactly. Say whether it was one, 200, 300 metres?
4: No, it sounded like... Uh, you know, like a hundred metres.
5: Okay. All right. They sounded like. Yep. That's...
4: They moved about hundred metres.
5: Then the car stops for a period of time. Yep. And I heard
4: like a clang. Like yep. Some someone dropping a crowbar or a bit of steel or something on the back of a tray. Because it's a steel back. It's got a tray on the back of it with no tail, with no
5: side gates on it. Okay.
4: They don't care. They don't have side gates on the Ute.
5: No side gates. Okay. And then uh you uh the car the car stops there for a while, then it moves off again? Yep. And then it stays there for about thirty minutes. Yes. And okay. Uh,
4: after it moved the first time then yep. it stopped for about thirty minutes? Yep. Twenty to thirty? Yep. I can't be
5: sure on that time. That's fine, mate. That's fine.
4: Um, and then it, off it went back towards
5: Palmerville Station. Did it do a U-turn or just yeah, go straight it ahead? A, U-turn, a full U-turn. Yep, okay, righto then. And then and it's I gone. I even went and tracked that U-turn. Like, after they left, Yep.
4: I went, right, I'll go and see what they said to Bruce, you know what I mean? Yep. So I gave it another 10 minutes after the car left me. Yep. And I got off out of my position. Yep. And I walked back to exactly which, as you know, as I've just said, I was only 100 metres from. Yep. So I walked back to that position, looked down, I couldn't see Bruce, and I went, oh, maybe he's walked back to the car. Yep. So I crossed through the exact spot that I last saw Bruce. Okay. Because we'd found gold there. Yep. And I was tempted to even metal detect, and I thought, no, I won't, because... I want to see Bruce first, you know? Yep. So, and he had a dog with him, and the dog wasn't around, so I kept walking, and probably, it's probably only another 300 metres back to the car.
5: Yep.
4: And I kept going. I was up on a high spur looking. Our car was in the centre of the river. Yep. I looked down in the river, and I saw nothing, and I went, oh, no one's at the car at the moment. So I probably walked around for another five minutes, and I looked down at the car, and I saw the dog there. Okay, yep. And I went, on. Oh, Bruce must be back at the car. Okay, yeah. So I crossed the creek, as I said, wait to take my boots off again. Yeah. You get across the creek because it's all water. So I, I waded across, got all, you know, you get wet up to your crutch. Yeah. Got across, put me bloody, hang my boots up,
5: walked up to the car, there's a the dog there, and no Bruce to be seen. Okay. And then uh, you've, you've got never your... Never saw or heard Struber again after that. OK. And, uh, mate, I've obviously been told, but just for my own records, uh, you, you're in the company of two other blokes? Uh, three other blokes, yep. Yep, so you're with Bruce? I was
4: with Bruce, my mate Tremaine, and the other bloke, which is uh, Rusty. nickname is.
5: Yep, what's Rusty's full name, mate?
4: Rusty, what's your name again? Kevin Grott,
5: G-R-A-T-H.
3: Okay. There is just so much to unpack with that commentary. The witness stated he tracked the U-turn, a claim he strenuously and vigorously denied at trial. There was no mention of meeting up with Tremaine. He stated he did no metal detecting on the way back to camp. And I've often wondered how he could see the dog from the other side of the river. I wondered if the police went to the position where he was just to satisfy themselves that they could see the dog or see the ute even from that position. That witness said elsewhere the dog was beside the car. One of the other witnesses stated the dog was cowering under the car. Just a small inconsistency. And I've often wondered, did that dog swim the creek? Will dogs enter water crocodiles inhabit? Now the following is the witness's recollections when he gave a statement at Maribot Police Station on the Tuesday night.
4: Then I went back to the car. Uh, then I slowly worked my way up across the roadway, heading back to my camp, to the car, where we camped the night. Prior. Right. Yep. Uh, I'd only walk probably 150 yards, mm-hmm. maybe 200 at the most, and I, I and I hear Tremaine yell out, "Hui, butt. Yep. I look down to my right towards the Palmer River, and here's Tremaine hiding in on a st- on beside a log as well. Okay. A fallen tree. We sit together yeah. for approximately two or three minutes, talk about it. He's, he's going off about, I should have, I was going to jump up and bloody yell out at him, mm-hmm. you know, confront him. And I said, oh, I don't know bro, you don't want to walk into a gun, you know. Yeah. So, um, I said best to live and fight another day mate, you know. Yeah. So I said, where's, you seen Bruce? No, have you? No. I said, where's, uh, where's Rusty? He said, I haven't seen him either. I said, oh, eh? So we're just thinking they've scarpered too with the gunshots as Mm -hmm. we, as we all did, would've, you know. Yeah. With that, I start walking back to the car and before I cross the river where we, crossed, where we took our shoes off yep. I'm up on the high ground again and I'm sort of metal detecting my way back Trying to keep my eye out for Bruce and them to see where they are mm-hmm. With that I look back across at the car once, no one was there So I'm thinking oh well they're not back at the car because they had a clear vision of the vehicle mm-hmm. in our camp Oh yeah, no one's down there. Now, probably I would have swung around probably another 10 minutes. Yeah. And I thought, I walked sort of out of sight of the car, up higher ground, you know, under higher ground.
5: Yeah.
4: And uh, just sort of kept detecting, thinking, oh, they'll be along soon, you know. Mm -hmm. We'll all gather gather back at the vehicle after that incident. And so I'm mm-hmm. hanging around that end of the things thinking, well they'll be ready to cross the creek soon. Yep. With that, I drop down, I look, sorry, with that. I look down at the car, He's got a vision of visual of the car again, mm-hmm. and I saw his dog there. Beside Bruce's his dog. dog. Bruce's okay. dog. Which never leaves his side. Okay. Never. Alright? Follows him everywhere. And yep. uh, I look down, see the dog I go, oh Bruce is back Good, I'll go and see what he said yep. So I go down the creek Take my boots off Wade across the water Walk about 100 metres Up to the vehicle, through the Soft white sand mm-hmm. See the dog there You know like, girl, where's Bruce? So then I walk around the car going Bruce, you there?
3: Once again, the following audio Was recorded on the Monday night have a listen.
5: All right, mate. Um, I know it's a little bit difficult. I just want to take you back to you walked mate, up I'm to. Happy to feel all. Happy to answer anything. Okay. You said that you walked back to where you last saw Bruce. Yep. Um, did you Did you see any signs or anything? Did you No. I didn't really think to look much then. You know what I mean? But okay, I didn't yeah. see any sign. Yep.
4: But after I went back to the car and waited for a while.
5: Yep. Um, me, me and Tremaine went, oh, Tremaine went back first,
4: I also went back. Yep. And we're looking for blood, you know, we thought, oh, maybe he shot him, you know. Yeah. So we both, we went back to the site separately. Okay, yeah. And looked, Tremaine kept going towards the homestead. Yep. And, um, thinking that maybe he's down that way a bit.
5: Yeah.
4: And well, we couldn't sign find any sign of blood or anything. But that's what I said to you, we did track where the car turned around, we went, yeah, I said, yeah,
5: that's right, bro, I saw it, I didn't see it turn around, but I heard it turn around. Okay, yep. And the was Bruce still in possession of the prospecting um, utensil? Or? When I last witnessed him, yes. And we, we, you didn't find that? No. So that's missing as well? Yes.
3: Okay. Now compare that with the audio from the next night, Tuesday. When the witness is giving a statement to police at Mariba.
4: So I sat down. I thought I was starting to heat up. Mm. So it's probably 10:30 by then. Mm-hmm. The incident. I happened in about 9:30, 10. Okay. My watch isn't working properly at the moment. It needs a new battery. So it wasn't. The time wasn't true. It's about an hour or something. It's 8:49 now. What is it now? 8:20. Uh, yeah, so it's about 20 minutes out. Okay. So I know it happened about around 9, the boys reckon 9.30, 10 o'clock, and I yep. wouldn't argue with that. Okay. So it was heating up by then, so I thought, I'll go down and have a wash. So I went down and had a wash and sat down and had an orange and had a tin of fruit. And I'm thinking, God, where are they? You know? Yeah. Where are they? Oh, about an hour transpired. hmm At least. Maybe an hour and a half. Next minute, I see his dog look across the bank and I thought, oh, this must be him now. What? It was Tremaine coming through the bushes. He comes across the creek. What's happening, bro? Where Where is everyone? I said, no one's here, mate. With that, he went, what? I said, no, no one's here. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't know. I haven't seen anyone except you. I said, he may, may, maybe he caught both of them. You know? Mm. Maybe that's what the two shots were, you know? Okay. Having the shot at both of them or shooting above them. Usually he'd shoot above you. Does he? Yeah. Okay. Shoots above you. Yeah. Um, then, uh, so then we sat there together. Probably, half oh, half hour, and then he said, "Bugger this! He's fitter than me, you know." Mm. He said, "And I said, Bro, I'm buggered already." He said, "Well, I'm going back to look." I said, "You better check for blood too, bro." So off he went. And he walked, and then he went back to the gully, walked the whole length of it, up, back went all the way nearly down the homestead way, down that end of the camp, Mm -hmm. down that end of the river. It would have been, it probably was gone an hour. I was just sitting on the bank waiting. Yep. Wishing I had a fishing line because there was fish jumping. Sure. (coughs) And um, still thinking that they're just either hiding or Mm. or He's found some gold and he's busy or something, you know. But yep. I still thought it unusual mm-hmm. that we didn't all meet back yep. after that incident. Yep. And trying came back, then we were worried. Mm-hmm. When he said, bro, I can see no sign of him. I've walked around, I've yelled out.
3: Whether the witness did or didn't go back, looking for the crime scene, looking for the witness, looking for the turnaround point was the subject of some vigorous exchanges during the trial with one of the Defence counsel. I know I have covered the Struber ute turning around and going back to the homestead, but I came across this audio which reinforced that and is worth hearing, just in case anyone was in doubt about whether the Struber vehicle did or didn't go to the second crime scene.
4: Well, think I should put... Where the car turned around. You saw him turn around, did you? No, I didn't. So what
1: did you... Well, we tracked it today with the other ones. Oh, did you? Did you see the track marks where he's... Yeah, one of the ones is pointing. Ah, right. Okay. No, mate, we'll leave that off because that's your... This this is your sighting of the day, so... That's their thing. Yeah, that's excellent. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's right.
3: I always wondered why the point the Struber vehicle turned around, was never marked on diagrams prepared by the Queensland Police Service. Well, that's now being explained. If you, as one of the prospectors, actually went up to Palmville Station that same day, alone, that is something you would remember also, right? I mean, the station owners have just fired at and potentially killed your mate. To go there, unarmed, looking for answers, would be something permanently burned into your brain, I suggest. We never heard of it. It wasn't given in court. It's in no statements. But it is burned into the diaries of two police officers. That visit by one of the Crown Witnesses to Palmerville Station House went the same way as Bruce
5: Um, now, Tremaine and uh, Rusty, they they were over in the the creek. Is that right? From where you were when you heard the first gunshot? Um.
4: Well, I wasn't sure where they were until after I seen them. You know, but they they were within hundred metres. Yes. Okay. All right. They were within a hundred metres. All right. Uh,
5: after the first gunshot, we all sort of bolted. You know. Understandable. Understandable.
4: All right, uh, we, Daniel, thank we, you for... And then we waited, bro, like eight hours. This yep. happened at 10 o'clock this morning. Yes. At least. We argue about whether it was 9.30 or 10.
5: Okay. But
4: it, it was between 9.30 and 10.30. I don't even think it was 10.30, more like 9.30, 10. Okay, yeah. And um, then we sat at the car till 1 o'clock and I left because Bruce had the keys to his car, see? Yeah. Yeah. So we had no access to his vehicle, which had all that stuff in it. Okay, yep. So then I jumped on, Tremaine had a little motorbike here, a little uh, 125.
5: Yep. I jumped on that and rode back to Maytown, which is about, back to my place, which is about an hour. Okay, yep.
4: Exactly an hour's ride. Righto. And I jumped in my car and I I waited here till three o'clock for Tremaine's got a sat phone. Yep. To ring me and say whether he turned up or not, you know. Okay. And when he said, no, bro, no one's turned up, I said, right, I'll be there to pick you up.
5: Right, Righto.
4: So then we left Bruce's car there with a first cap page note under the front w- wiper blade. Yeah, Saying that, looking forward to you contacting us, ring us on your sat phone, we've got your dog and we've got a bit of our gear. Yep. Because he, he's got a
5: ute, so some of our gear was in the back that wasn't locked. You know okay. What I mean? All right.
3: Also on that afternoon, witnesses Anderson and Groth met up around 3pm. Again, it depends on whose version you accept as to the circumstances of them meeting up. I do not have audio of it, but I can tell you the written versions have significant discrepancies. You have heard Bruce Schuller locked his car and took his keys with him on that Monday morning. What is curious is that Bruce left probably his most valuable asset in the open back tray of his ute, not locked in the cabin. How do we know this? From diary entries in three police notebooks. The following was recorded in one of those notebooks. Black Iridium satellite phone located in KSL bag in the rear of Bruce's ute, removed by Bidner on the 9th and given to CS on the 14th. I've chosen not to name CS. The amigos have repeatedly said they left a message for Bruce to call them, but they had his sat phone. And besides, if Bruce had returned to the vehicle and there was no one there, he had the keys to his car. He could have just as easily driven home. But it appeared important for some reason to point out they had left a message for him. And this is where it gets weird. On Saturday, the fourteenth of July, two thousand and twelve. Five days after Bruce's disappearance, detectives attended Bidner's property at Maytown by arrangement, executed a search warrant and searched it. Nothing was located or seized. On the same day, Bidner gave Bruce's sat phone to CS to return to Shula's property, which he did. He met police along the road later that morning. Why didn't Bidner... Just give the sat phone to the detectives. And apart from the entries in the notebooks, there was no other mention at all of this unusual occurrence. No statement was taken from CS. The police officer who added the details into his statement wrote this at point 51. During the course of the search, the following property was located and seized by police. Two razors for DNA comparison. One Nokia mobile phone, one satellite phone. So many questions. After scripting and recording this episode, I am actually speechless. I do not know where to start in dissecting the versions of the three amigos, the star crown witnesses. Their evidence was literally the entire basis of the murder case against Stephen Struber and Diane Wilson. The Crown prosecutor was not kidding when he told the jury during summing up that he acknowledged there were inconsistencies in the evidence of the three prospectors with Bruce at the time of his disappearance. The question is was he aware how inconsistent? That's it for Forgetful Moments. Thanks for listening. I hope you have enjoyed the episode. For information, feedback, or comment, You can go to the Facebook page Justice for Bruce Shuler or my Facebook page Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations. Alternatively you can contact me directly at my email graham5353 at live.com If you follow the podcast you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help spread the story and make it visible to others who follow true crime podcasts and may have an interest in the case. Please tell your family and friends. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the Acast Creator Network. Music by Janet G. If you like the podcast, you can support me for the one-off cost of a cup of coffee by transferring funds to Commonwealth Bank, BSB 064180, account 10064508. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more